For those of you who were in the Revelation or Daniel classes, this class will feel very different because there are no strange visions, there's no four-headed beasts or weird creatures, that's right. There's, there's very few supernatural characters, a few, but not very many in the book of Hebrews. Pretty much, you can take Hebrews literally. Okay, there's, there's not a lot of sorting out. However, you're not off the hook. We are actually going to delve into lots of other places in both the Old Testament and the New Testament um, because there's still background that we need to understand. The message of Hebrews is the important part. And it is a message that packs a wallop. Um, and if you look at your scripture references, uh, you are welcome to follow along in your Bible as we read the scriptures. But since I use a whole lot of different translations, sometimes it's easier to follow along in the scripture references. The message in Hebrews echoes the message that both John the Baptist and Jesus taught. Look at the first reference, which is Luke chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. He, that is John the Baptist, went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Now, we have just come through the Christmas season, right? And we typically associate that prophecy with the first coming of Christ. But I want you to look at it carefully. What it says there in verse 5 is every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads become straight, the rough ways smooth. That is an end time prophecy. If you remember some of our study in Revelation, that was prophesied to happen just at the second coming of Christ. And when Jesus came the first time, all people did not see his salvation in the way that they will the second time he comes. When he comes the second time, the Bible says it will be as obvious as lightning flashing in the sky from the east to the west. Everybody will see him at the same time and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, I think that's what it says. That's the coming it's talking about when it says all people will see God's salvation. I, I think that John the Baptist, his message was that very first part that says prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him in preparation for the second coming of Christ. That otherwise there would be no reason to keep preparing the way of the Lord and making the path straight. There would be no message beyond Christ's birth. And Christ had already been born. Christ had come the first time when this message happened. He hadn't started his ministry yet, but he was there. So people at that time listening to John the Baptist kind of said, what? What do, you, what do you mean by that? That doesn't make any sense. We've got no bulldozers. You know, what are you talking about? So he went on to explain in verses 8 and 9. He said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what he meant when he said, prepare the way for the Lord. 
Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father, as if that was going to give them any special standing, right? He said, you know what? Out of these stones, God could raise up children for Abraham, but the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. When does that fire happen? Do y'all remember from Revelation? It's after the great white throne judgment. It's after Jesus comes the second time and after he's reigned on earth for a thousand years. It's at the end. So this message of prepare the way for the Lord and make the crooked way straight is for the Christians back then and for us today. We should be doing that. And what that meant in English, says John, is it means that we need to produce fruit in keeping with the repentance that we repented when we were baptized. Okay. Then he goes, the people say, uh, what does that mean? What does that mean to produce fruit in keeping with repentance? And so in verses 10 through 14, John the Baptist said, well, anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Everybody can do this. But then tax collectors were coming to be baptized. And they said, well, what should we do to produce fruit? Well, tax collectors were the scum of the earth back then. They collected taxes and they collected more than their fair share because they weren't paid. And so everybody just hated them because they had the authority to take your money, but there was no oversight to make sure they only took what was needed. So what he told them, he said, well, don't collect any more than you're required to. Now, you know what? That's not going to leave them anything, leave them anything to live on. It meant they were going to have to trust to some other way. They were going to have to trust God for their livelihood if they followed to that instruction. Then some soldiers came up. The soldiers said, well, what should we do to produce fruit and prepare the way for the Lord? And he said, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. See, these are Roman soldiers he's talking about. And what they would do is they would come up to you and say, I'm going to say I caught you stealing unless you give me money. So they would extort money from people with the authority that Rome had vested in them. Now, those seem to be very different messages to each class of people, right? And that is true for each of us producing fruit is unique to our situation, to who we are, to what we do for a living, to where we are planted. However, if you look carefully at the message, there's a common denominator in all three of his specific examples. You see, what it is, is every answer involved giving up the God of money and embracing your fellow man. It was a hard message. It's a hard message today. It means that to grow as Christians, we must let go of our worldly security. We cannot look to our 401ks for security. We cannot look to our jobs for security. We cannot look to our government, our social security for security. We have to give up trusting in money. And as Evidence of that fruit of having given that up will be that suddenly you will be able to let go of it. You will be able to give it away freely. You will be able to trust God for your security 
instead of trusting money. But only when you topple that idol of money do you leave room to trust God. Another fruit of that position of our heart will be that we won't, will no longer hoard for ourselves. We will be willing to share with others. So bottom line, we have, in order to grow as Christians and produce fruit, we have to let God be in control of our well-being. Then, and only then, when we're ready to try this new approach, this new way, then we're ready for what happens next. The new attitude prepares our hearts to be able to believe and accept some really good news. And that's the good news preached by Jesus. That is what John the Baptist meant when he said prepare a way for the Lord. He meant prepare a way in your heart for the Lord. Right after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, you know he went in the desert for 40 days. He was tempted by Satan. Remember that? And at the conclusion of his temptation, Jesus began his ministry. And when he began it, he announced what his ministry would be. Look at Luke 4, verse 16 through 21. He, Jesus, went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it. He found the place where it is written. And this is just like in church. This is where the preacher reads the scripture for the day, and then he starts preaching about it. Okay? So here's the scripture for the day that Jesus read to announce the beginning of his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And everybody looked at him, waiting for him to talk. And he said, he began his sermon by saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now you know from studying probably your Bibles over the years that Jesus almost never talked about your physical well-being. The Pharisees were continually getting that confused. Remember when people would bring him, you know, sick people to heal, and, and he wouldn't say, get up and walk. He'd say, your sins are forgiven. Okay? Jesus thinks in terms of your spiritual reality, not your physical reality. He will take care of that. He said, don't worry about your physical reality. Be like the you know, flowers in the field. But what's important is the spiritual reality. So look back at what he said in verse 8 was the good news. And think of it not in the physical. He's not talking about proclaiming freedom for, for prisoners in jail. He's talking about freedom for us spiritually. He's not talking about recovery of sight for physically blind, although he did that. He's talking about recovery of sight for those of us who are spiritually blind. Setting the oppressed free, those of us who are bound by fear. He came to set us free. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which of course was not a 365-day year. It's an age. It's the age that concludes with his second coming. This is the gospel message in a nutshell, right? The message is simply that God loves us. He wants to free us. He wants to heal us. And he wants to bless us. So, what does that have to do with the book of Hebrews? 
It has everything to do with it. You see, most Christians get stuck at the point of salvation. They repent. We, we repent. We get baptized. We believe the good news of God's love. But that's it. There are no further changes in our lives. We never set out on our mission to prepare a way for the Lord. We just, we get set free and we stand at the door of our prison looking back. That's not what God intended. This stagnation is how we get people who call themselves Christians, but you can tell by what they say and how they act and how they treat people that they could not possibly be walking with Jesus. Because what happens is, yes, they believe. You know, I believe they're probably going to heaven. You know, they believe in Jesus Christ, but they are completely missing out on the blessing that is available in the here and now. And they are doing the body of Christ no good whatsoever. In fact, they're doing it harm. John the Baptist made it clear that there would be no more, that there would be more to the Christian walk than just repentance and acceptance of God's love. John said, we just read, he said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. But you know what? We modern Christians are not alone. Even the early Christians fell into the temptation of laziness. Paul chastised them all the time about this. He's for failing to grow and produce fruit, right? Look at 1 Corinthians 3. Verses 1 through 3. Brothers and sisters, when I was there, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere human beings? James, that's Jesus' little brother, also tried to call the early Christians to grow and produce fruit. Here's what James said in chapter 1, verse 22 through 26. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Those who listen to the word but do not do what it says are like people who look at themselves in a mirror and after they look at themselves, they immediately, they go away and they forget what they looked like. That's what it is to listen and not do. He said, but those who look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, that would be Jesus who came to fulfill the law and perfect it. Those who look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continue in it, not forgetting what they heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. The whole New Testament is full of similar exhortations. Those are just, you know, poo of many, many, many. Christianity is not supposed to be an intellectual exercise. It's not something you read. It's supposed to change our lives every day. It's supposed to deepen us, to grow, to grow us every day in every way. The Hebrews... These early Christians who had previously been of the Jewish faith, they had fallen into the trap of complacency that we fall into today. And this book is written to them, and it is written to us. Look at handout number one. This handout 
is an outline chapter by chapter of the message, the primary message in each chapter in Hebrews. And of course, we'll flesh it out as we go through the class. But let's just look at it as an overview of what the message in Hebrews is. First chapter says, God speaks to us. He always has, and he still does. Second chapter, we must pay more attention to the message. It is a very important message. Chapter three says, don't ever turn away from God. Chapter four, don't miss this chance to enter God's rest. Accept God's offer of glory, comfort, and rest. Believe that he can do it and believe that he will do it. Chapter five, don't worry that you're unworthy. Chapter six, don't fall away. You've been stagnant, but be determined to fulfill the dream of salvation. Hold on to the dream of salvation as the sure and solid anchor of your soul. That word dream a lot of times is translated hope, that hope of salvation. That's where the symbol of hope is the anchor. That's where that comes from is this, is this chapter in Hebrews. Now, I want to just give you a visual picture here of the hope of salvation because that's a confusing phrase. I thought we were saved. Why are we still hoping to be saved, right? Think of it like this. Think of yourself dog paddling in the ocean. You've been shipwrecked, okay? And you need somebody to save you. And off in the distance, you see a ship. Thank you, God, I'm saved, okay? And the ship sees you. You have, you know you've been saved. You, it is a sure thing. That ship is heading for you. But you haven't been plucked out of the water and rescued yet, okay? That's the situation we're in, okay? We're still here on earth. We know we've been saved. That is a sure salvation, but it still is our dream, our hope. We still are going to get to heaven. You know what I mean? Okay. So if you, if you think about that and, and press the analogy a little bit, go on to the next chapter, which is chapter seven. This salvation and hope is better than what we used to have under the old Jewish law. For one thing, Jesus is now our high priest and he represents the new covenant. So if you continue that analogy, what it's saying is if you're dog paddling, the old law would be like seeing a lifeboat come for you, okay? You get in the lifeboat, it's a boat, it's floating, but it's very vulnerable, okay? It, you know, a, a storm comes along, you're sunk, literally, <laughs> no pun intended. But, but the new covenant is like seeing an aircraft carrier come from, for you. It's like, hurricane? What hurricane? You know, when you're saved with the new covenant, there's no holes, all right. It's not dependent on you paddling that lifeboat to shore. You are saved. All right. So as we go through, kind of keep the, that analogy of salvation in your head, that there's more to salvation than the instant of knowing that you're saved. Chapter eight, since there's a new and better covenant, there must have been something seriously wrong with the old covenant. Or put another way, since the old covenant was so faulty, God created a new and better one. Chapter nine. Let's compare the old covenant with the new one. First, compare the offerings. And then continue in chapter 10 to compare the results of those offerings. The new covenant is clearly better and more effective than the old. And if we reject it, all that is left for us is hell, for we cannot save ourselves. Not only would we be rejecting Christ's sacrifice, but we would be throwing away our great reward. Chapter 11. 
Cling to your faith, your hope of salvation, like the saints that went before you. Chapter 12, stop whining and looking back at your old life. Start enduring whatever it is you're in, whatever situation you're in. Start enduring and looking forward. Hold on to that hope. And the last chapter, chapter 13, live the Christian life. Love your brothers, trust God, support your leaders, and enter fully into the kingdom of heaven now. The result will be that God will plant you in you what is pleasing to him and will grow and perfect these virtues so that you will naturally do his will. Now, that's a pretty powerful book. Even though the book was written to the early Jewish Christians, it clearly has a direct application to us. If so many Christians, both then and over all the ages, had trouble with complacency, it must be a very great danger indeed. It's not a danger that we can ignore and say, oh, that doesn't apply to me. We need to examine our own lives and our own walks with God. Think about this. Have we spent any time listening for God lately? Or is our conversation with God limited to requests, like the giant jukebox in the sky? How much time have we spent just being quiet with God? Think about it. If you have spent time with God, there will be fruit in your life. Have, think over the last week or two. Have there been any aha moments where the Holy Spirit has revealed just a little jewel of truth to your heart? Have we had moments of joy where just a little bucket of blessing, you know, dumps on your head unexpectedly? Or are we stuck in the muck and mire of our daily grind? Are we focusing on the muck and the mire? Even if our lives require that we be surrounded by muck and mire, God provides a shelter and a means of healing. He will bring support in time of need. His favor and blessing are sure promises that are not dependent in our, on our circumstances. And in fact, the lower that we are, the more he delights in lifting us up. The book of Hebrews is the message we need, and we need it now. And we don't really know who wrote the book of Hebrews. It could have been Paul, could have been Barnabas, could have been Apollos, could have been somebody else that we don't even know what their names are. Its very placement in the New Testament is because of that doubt. You see, the New Testament is arranged with the four Gospels first, which tell the story of Christ's life, then Acts, which tells what happened immediately after he died and was resurrected, and then it has a whole chunk of letters written by Paul, arranged in order. They're not in chronological order. They're in order from the longest to the shortest, which makes no sense to me. I wish they were chronological. but. You know, whatever. <laughs> they did them from longest to shortest. And then the end of the New Testament is the letters of everybody else other than Paul who wrote, who were apostles and who wrote letters. And those are also from longest to shortest. And then the end is Revelation. Well, what they did, since we don't know who wrote Hebrews, they put it smack in the middle in between Paul's letters and the letters of the other apostles. That way, if you think that Paul wrote it, you won't be offended. And if you think the other apostles wrote it, you won't be offended. And isn't it stupid that we get offended over things like that? <laughs> but that's why it is where it is in the New Testament. The letter was accepted from the very beginning by early Christian leaders as being important and written by 
someone with apostolic authority. That was the criteria for it getting into the Bible in the first place. You know, it had to be somebody who knew Christ or was a, recognized as an apostolic authority. It also had to be somebody very learned because the Greek is very polished in this book. Um, it had to be someone who understand logic. It's a very eloquent and logical and carefully built book. Well, in fact, what it does is it, it just builds an argument. And it had to be somebody who had a Jewish background because he's speaking to Jews and he's using examples out of their Jewish heritage to build his arguments. Take a quick look at handout number two. Did everybody get a handout? If anybody didn't have one, raise your hand. The, the first and most obvious place that people look is at Paul. Could the author have been Paul? Well, he was a Jew, definitely. We know that from, from Acts 23, verse 6. He was obviously an apostle. He wrote tons of letters that went to the early Christians. But there's a whole lot of reasons why it probably was not Paul. For one thing, it... It doesn't start out with the, you know, grace and peace to you, dearly beloved, that every single one of his other letters starts out with. Also, the Greek is much more sophisticated than the Greek that Paul used in his letters. Paul dictated his letters. This letter is not the kind that you would sit down and dictate. It's, it's a crafted letter. It's an argument. It's like a thesis. And in one place, in, in one of the chapters, chapter 9, there's a Greek word, diatheki, which has a double meaning in Greek. It either means a will, like as in somebody inheriting and leaving, you know, leaving their stuff, that kind of a will, or a covenant, as in a contract or a promise. And there's a play on words in, that, in uh, Hebrews 9, verses 15 through 18, where it uses the same word in both each each of those meanings within that set of verses. That is not Paul-esque. Paul was not that sophisticated in the way that he wrote and he talked. It also doesn't have what we call the establishment of his apostolic authority. You see, Paul was very threatened because Paul never met Jesus while Jesus was here on earth. And so all these other guys were recognized as apostles, but Paul was always being accused of not being a real apostle because he didn't know Jesus face to face. He only met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he didn't see much. He went blind immediately. Remember that? So every letter that Paul wrote, you see something in there about him saying, well, I am an apostle. I'm a true apostle. I was called by Jesus. And there's always some reference to his apostolic authority. That doesn't exist in the book of Hebrews. He, he, it also doesn't talk about how he wants to try to visit them. Every single other, other letter is very personable. I, I was on my way to see you, or I got sidetracked, and I'm going to come see you, and you know, when I, I'm going to send somebody there first, and then I'm going to come see you. None of that is in the book of Hebrews. And lastly, and Shelby and I have been reading some of Paul's letters lately. You'll appreciate this. It doesn't call attention to himself as an example. In every other letter that Paul writes, he uses himself as an example. He's just that kind of guy. <laughs> and, and he's not arrogant, he, he, but he sure comes across that way. And he knows he does, and he's always trying to tell him, you know, I'm nothing, I, you know, I know that I'm nothing, I know I'm the lowest of the low, but do things like I do them, and here's how I do them, you know? And none of that is in the book of Hebrews. 
So what are some of the other choices? Well, one of them would be Luke. Luke was the doctor that accompanied Paul on a lot of his mission trips. And Luke was the one who wrote the book, obviously the Gospel of Luke, but also the book of Acts. So he was clearly educated enough. He had the, the requisite education and, and command of the Greek language. The problem is the books that we have of his are basically journals. They're travel journals. They're not apostolic expositions, you know. There, he, he, there's no record of Luke ever being sent to pastor a church or to deliver a message like Titus and Timothy and those guys, you know, Paul would send Silas. He'd send a lot of people. Never any reference of sending Luke. So it's doubtful that it was Luke. Barnabas, who was Paul's partner for a while till they had a fight, remember that? Well, Barnabas had a, he was Jewish background. He was an apostle, but we don't have any other books he wrote, so we don't know what his style would be. It's, it's possible that he wrote this, and the same argument would go for Apollos, who is referred to numbers of times in the New Testament. Apollos was referred to in Acts 18.24 as an eloquent man, he's a Jew, competent in the scriptures. And he was recognized as an apostle by Paul. Paul actually said in 1 Corinthians 3.6, he said that Paul planted the church at Corinthians, but Apollos watered it. Apollos was the pastor at Corinth. And so it's possible that he wrote it. We just, like Barnabas, we have nothing else of his to compare it to, so we can't really say for sure. What we do know with certainty is that the book was written sometime after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And we know that because in Hebrews itself, in chapter 10, verse 12 and 13, it refers to when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So we know that it was written sometime between, after A.D. 29. Okay? We also know it was written before the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. And we know that because chapter 10 is just full of references to temple sacrifices happening, going on, while Hebrews was being written. So we've narrowed it down to between 29 and 70. Okay, We can also actually narrow it down probably further because in Hebrews 10, in verses 32 and 34, it refers to the persecution of the Hebrews. They were suffering already. And that persecution really did not start in earnest until the years of Emperor Nero. So that narrows it further down to somewhere probably between A.D. 64 and 68. So here we are, 2007, and we know within probably about four years of when this ancient book was written because of the internal references in it. That's amazing. 64 to 68, most likely. Mm -hmm. As we begin to study the book of Hebrews, we need to appreciate the presentation of the book. It's not a typical letter to a church. It doesn't talk about the news of the community. It doesn't address particular problems. You know, if you read some of Paul's writings, you'll see that some of them are, you know, beaten up on a church because they're letting a man sleep with his mother or, you know, whatever it is. It's not addressing a particular problem in a particular church for a particular people. It's, a, it's broader than that. What it is, is it's laid out like a scientific thesis. 
it is laid out to be understood with your mind and it uses logic intellect understanding and it starts with small statements that any Jew would say yeah uh -huh, I believe that and then it takes another small statement and says yeah uh -huh, I believe that and then there's another yeah uh -huh, I believe that well then he puts them all together and it leads them to a conclusion that therefore Christ must be the Son of God therefore you must produce fruit therefore you must walk and so we're going to look and when we study Hebrews we're going to be pulling out the pieces and saying well these are the building blocks of the argument and here's how here's the conclusion here's the message here's where they're building to most people and I don't know about your individual testimonies it might be fun sometime to just talk about those but most people come to Christ as an emotional experience and, and the people that come emotionally then go back and study the Bible and learn the history and, you know, and become educated Christians. But there are many people in this world who refuse to base their faith on an emotional experience. They don't trust their emotions. Therefore, they insist that before they become believers, they must understand the Christian faith logically. It must make sense intellectually. And there are people who specialize in explaining the Christian faith intellectually to people. And those people are called apologists. It come, it's the same word, root word as what we call an apology, but it's not an apology for Christianity. It is a logical explanation of Christianity. An example would be C.S. Lewis. He is one of the most famous Christian apologists in, in this, these later centuries. And another modern one would be Ravi Zacharias, is a, is a modern Christian apologist. There's lots of them. And in fact, the study of apologetics is a required course in modern day seminaries. Your pastors have studied Christian apologetics. We have to be able to explain our faith logically with our minds. Otherwise, and you have to move beyond, if you are saved in an emotional experience, you must move beyond that. Because if you rely solely on your emotions for your faith, number one, you're, you make a fool of yourself trying to explain it to anybody because you have no explanation for anything you believe. And, and, you know, that's not helping them. It's not helping you. And the other thing is it leaves you vulnerable to fads and to cults. You have no plumb line to keep you true. So you don't have to be afraid of looking at the Christian faith with your mind. God can stand up to the closest scrutiny. Our faith can stand up to the closest scrutiny. You don't have to be afraid of this. And in fact, the Bible says your faith can be explained and it should be explained to people as often as possible. And I've put that quote in your scripture references. First Peter chapter three, verse 15. But dedicate your lives to Christ as Lord Always be ready to defend your confidence in God when anyone asks you to explain it. However, make your defense with gentleness and respect. Hebrews is an example. It's a great example of apologetic writing. It approaches Christ intellectually from the Jewish perspective and shows how the Jewish faith leads inexorably to faith in Christ. Now, Hebrews uses traditional Greek logic. You have to remember this was a Greek culture, okay, at this time. And logic 
was the name of the game back then. One of their favorite pastimes was for the educated guys to go stand around and argue with each other. Okay? This logic was a big deal to them. So, do you remember when you went, to, I know this may be a painful memory, but when you went to school and you studied if-then statements, logic statements in math sometimes, sometimes in philosophy class, an if-then statement might be, if you were born in the United States, then you are a U.S. citizen. When you do a logic statement, you have to be careful. They generally work one way and not the other. So you couldn't say, if you are a U.S. citizen, you must have been born in the U.S. You could have been born to U.S. parents traveling overseas, right? Okay. Exactly, exactly. And there are a lot of logic statements that have several steps in them. Here's one. If Sally is sitting in the corner of the classroom, like Linda, <laughs> and if the boy sitting next to Sally is wearing a hat, and if Johnny is sitting next to Sally, then Johnny is wearing a hat. Okay? That is a nested logic statement. And that's the kind of logic used in Hebrews. The author will make a series of simple statements, that, and then he puts them together to show only one logical conclusion. And by the end of the book, the conclusion has built into a powerful call for action. Although a lot of these arguments that he uses will make intuitive sense to us, a lot of them don't because we're not Jews from the first century. Okay, So that's where our digging will come in a little bit. We'll go back and get the same mindset that the, these early Jews would have had so that we can understand the argument and understand the reaction to that argument. And the effort will be worth it because understanding the old rituals and the sacrifices that the Jews were using in the Old Covenant by doing that, we'll gain a clearer picture of the realities of the New Covenant. And this is, this is biblical. God knows that we see reality dimly. Okay? And he gives us lots of images, pictures, parables, to help us understand spiritual reality because we can associate it with the physical story or parable or something. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it says, now we see only a dim likeness of things. It is as if we were seeing them in a mirror. But someday we will see clearly. We will see face to face. What I know now is not complete, but someday I will know completely, just as God knows me completely. God gives us parables and parallels between the physical, earthly shadow. You have to just really change your mind's perspective. We think what we see is real. What we see is the shadow, the physical. The reality is the spiritual reality. And that's what we're trying to understand. And God always, from the beginning, gave us ways to understand the spiritual reality. That's how his design works. In Genesis 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image like us. That's so that we can look inside ourselves at our very own design and understand things about God and about how he works and how he relates. God made marriage, right, with Adam and Eve as a way for us to understand how we are part of God, how Christ can be part of God, how the Holy Spirit and Christ and God can be one, even though they're separate. All of this is... he. he 
instituted these things as a way for us to have a physical understanding that we can translate to the spiritual reality. And in addition, he uses just what we would call object lessons now, right? We use them with kids all the time. Look at Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6. This is an object lesson. The, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you a message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. You know, you've seen them throwing pots, and they have them on the wheel going around. And the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, house of Israel, as this potter does? declares the Lord, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. This is a great example of how if you're spending time with God, just being open to looking at something in the physical world and saying, God, you designed that. What were you trying to tell me with that design? And that's one way people, quote, meditate is they sit there and just try to absorb that design somewhere in the physical world and understand what message was God trying to communicate to us about how he works and who he is and what the spiritual reality is. Even Jesus taught this way. In Matthew 13, 33, of course, there are millions of, of examples, but he, he said this is a quick little parable. He said the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked its way all through the dough. Simple parable every woman in the world can understand. <laughs> we will find out in our study that the elements of the old Mosaic law, which we're going to go back and look at, will give us a powerful picture of the spiritual reality behind them. And they will give us a powerful understanding of the new covenant. It will help the message of Jesus become clearer. So by comparing the old covenant with the new, we open up our understanding to the new covenant and become more sure-footed in our faith and in our great hope, which was the promise of God. You remember what that was? That he will save us, that he loves us, he wants to free us, he wants to heal us, and he wants to bless us. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. All right, let's close with a prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for giving this time together. We're looking forward to getting into the meat of the book and being, being done with all this background and being ready to, to actually start studying the book next week. And we ask that you prepare our hearts and talk to us this week about what it means in our own lives to prepare the way for the Lord. And Lord, help us to understand whether we're producing fruit, what that fruit might look like for us, and, and show us if we need to move forward in our walk with you, Lord. We are here because we don't want to be stagnant. We want to be living water, and we want to understand what that means and and walk with you in a in a real way we ask for your safety for everybody as we go to our homes please bless us 
as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen.